As we come again before the very word of God, if you'd like to read with me, we'll be this morning in Genesis chapter 10. This will come in just a moment from Genesis 10, but before we read, would you please pray with me? Our great God, we know that all kingship belongs to the Lord, that you are the ruler over the nations and and that all families of the earth shall worship before you. Lord, we desire to have just a taste of that now. Would you stir worship in our hearts as we hear, as we listen, and as we go from here? By your Spirit, would you cause us to believe? Guide us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. This is Genesis in chapter 10. We have quite a number of verses this morning. We'll be taking up the entire chapter, and I think you'll see why in just a moment. Uh, But this is Genesis chapter 10. We'll begin in verse 1. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tiras. The sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Riftha, and Togarmah. The sons of Javan, Elisha, Tarshish, Kitim, and Dudanim. From these the coastland peoples spread in their lands, each with his own language by their clans in their nations. The sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put and Canaan, the sons of Cush, Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Ra'ama, and Sabteka, the sons of Ra'ama, Sheba, and Dedan. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad and Kalna in the land of Shinar. From that land he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth-ir, Kala, and Rezin between Nineveh and Kala, that is the great city. Egypt fathered Ludim, Anamim, Lehabim, Naphtuhim, Pathrusim, Kasluhim, from whom the Philistines came, and Kaphtorim. Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, and the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Archites, the Sinites, the Arvadites, the Zemorites, and the Hamadites. Afterward, the clans of the Canaanites dispersed, and the territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon in the direction of Gerar as far as Gaza, and the direction of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma and Zebuim, as far as Lasha. These are the sons of Ham by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. To Shem also, the father of all the children of Eber, the elder brother of Japheth, children were born. The sons of Shem, Elam, Asher, Arkpashad, Lud, and Aram. The sons of Aram, Uz, Hul, Gether, and Mash. 
Arkpashad fathered Shelah, and Shelah fathered Eber. To Eber were born two sons. The name of the one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. Joktan fathered Almodad, Sheleph, Hazarmavaleth, Jera, Hadaram, Uzal, Dikla, Obal, Ibamael, Sheba, Ophir, Havilah, and Jobab. All these were the sons of Joktan. The territory in which they lived extended from Meshah in the direction of Sephar to the hill country of the east. These are the sons of Shem. By their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. These are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies in their nations. And from these nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. This is the word of God. Oh, my jaw is tired. Um, lots of names. You'll give grace, I'm sure, in my pronunciation of these things. If you're like me, for most, if not all of us, a text like this is probably not your favorite part of the Bible. There's no story or narrative events here. There's not big excitement and drama. It's just a list of people and places. But even if this isn't your favorite, we're not going to skip it. And I don't want you to just check out now or, or mentally just kind of grin and endure this till you know, my time is done. We really believe that, that all the scriptures are true and that all scriptures come ultimately from an eternal, holy God. More than that, we believe, as Paul says to Timothy, that all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for us, he says. All scripture is profitable. That is, there's gain to be had. There's benefit to us in all of the scriptures. That's not to say that every scripture is equally profitable. There's a lot packed in some very small spaces of Scripture, like Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. That is a profitable text, central to our faith in Jesus, that, that he is the one by his blood who brings us to God. In a sense, there's greater profit in a text like that than there is here in Genesis 10. But we do believe that every Scripture does have some distinct profit, something to give us from God, which means no text of the Bible is just filler or fluff or the credits at the end of a movie. So if we say we believe that all Scripture is profitable, then let's show we believe that. Let's give this text, as best we can, a good and careful listen. What we have here in Genesis 10, the entirety of this chapter, is often called 
the table of nations. If you've ever heard that referred to elsewhere, that's a reference to this chapter of the Bible, the table of nations. By nations, we don't just mean countries. Nations is a reference to people groups, pockets of people. And even though this position appears in the Bible before the Tower of Babel, that's Uh, next week in chapter 11. Chronologically, what we see here, what we've just read, most of it comes after the Tower of Babel. You know, the Tower of Babel account begins with the description that, that everyone on the earth had one language. But here in this text, we have many nations with many different languages. So the Table of Nations is really moving us from the days of the flood into the days of the Tower of Babel, into the days of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, even into the days of Moses and Israel when they're on the edge of the Promised Land, that those people, as they were preparing to enter into the Promised Land, would be looking in front of them at a living table of nations that they've seen here. Now, the table of nations is not just something that belongs then in a file cabinet. Or, or some sort of PowerPoint presentation in an office. You know, this isn't something that just gets typed up on a spreadsheet, some report of names. This is really a genealogy, a living bundle of people, the generations of the sons of Noah, it calls itself at the beginning. And genealogy, I know, has become a little bit of a trendy hobby in some circles. It's fine, that's great, that's uh, good for what it is, but this is not Ancestry.com. You know, this is not something where you scan through looking for your own name to see if you're related to Abraham Lincoln or someone on the Mayflower, as cool as that might be. Nor is this something like 23andMe, if you know what that is, uh, where you look up your genetic heritage and you see that you're, you know, 23% Irish and 19% North African. Those are different things. In the Bible, genealogies are not for personal use. For me to see my own history, genealogies are for societal use. They're for the whole people. And we see different genealogies in the Bible with different types of purposes for their society. So some of them would show, for instance, the lineage of the priests or the kings to affirm whether or not someone was part of that. Uh, Some of them are to make census for for militaries and and tallying things up for war. Some genealogies are, are to show how God's covenant continues from one generation to another down a straight line. Most of these come in the form of what we call a linear genealogy. These are the most common in the Bible. In fact, we saw one not too long ago. If you've got your Bible still open, you can flip back just a few pages to to chapter 5, where we looked at the generations of Adam. And it followed a single line from Adam through his son Seth and his son and his son and his son on down to Noah. It's a chain, a linear genealogy. We're going to see another one of those fairly soon in chapter, chapter 11, the generations of, of Shem, which are also one line from Shem, the son of Noah, to Terah, the father of Abraham. Linear genealogies come in a clear chain from point A to point B, but this is not linear. 
There's not a chain here. This is what we call a segmented genealogy. There are clear beginning points, but there's not a clear end. It just branches out like a grapevine with winding tendrils. And inside of this grapevine of genealogies, there's a few individual grapes that are noteworthy. There's the guy named Nimrod, which just sounds like an unfortunate name, but there's the guy Nimrod who's called the Mighty Man, the first of the Mighty Man, and, and we're told that he's the source of the kingdoms of Babel, or Babylon, and of Assyria, who are the great enemies of Israel. We also see not just Nimrod, there's some showcase of, of the guy named Eber, a descendant of Shem, which if his name doesn't sound familiar, that's all right, but Eber is the origin of the term Hebrew. So all the Hebrew people of God are ones who have come from the line of Eber. At any rate, the, the table doesn't uh, focus a lot of time on these individual grapes, if it does, it just kind of mentions a few things and then moves on by. It's mainly showing bunches or clusters of people, which is why it's not called the table of persons. It's the table of nations. Now, the table of nations lays out these nations in a very ordered way. It's not a chain getting from point A to point B, but it's also not a junk drawer either, where we're just tossing out names, you know, wherever they fit. The table is really structured, built around the foundation of the three sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. They're mentioned at the beginning and then throughout. It's an account of each of their generations as these three sons move from the epicenter of the ark and then spread out over the earth. So in general, Japheth, his line moves north and west. I don't know how to do that. North and west to become the coastland peoples around Greece and Europe. Ham's line moves south and west uh, to be the people around Egypt, the Arabian Peninsula, and Canaan. And Shem's line stays kind of central and moves a little to the southeast and, and moves mostly into the Persian Gulf. Each of these three sons that are outlined in the text are, are outlined differently in the table, but they all end with almost the same phrase. We're told in each of these bundles, these are the sons by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. Their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. So these diverse nations that spring out of these three sons don't just produce identical groups of people in different places. As they spread out, these human populations over the earth become truly different people, different nations with different culture, different commerce, different communication, different conduct, different clans, different color of skin, even. The Table of Nations doesn't, you know, comment about the specifics of the differences, nor does it say what's good or bad about the development of the different nations. It just follows the growth of the grapevines as they spread out. 
And it's going to set up some context for the rest of the Bible to understand the social dynamics between the nations. Now, that was a lot of technical stuff. If I lost you, come back. How does this text then profit us? It would have been helpful in their day to understand the context around them, but we're not in that context. We're in our own. How does this text profit us? The Table of Nations shows us two twin truths. These two things are not earth-shaking, maybe even not that new to you, but they're significant to know and to hold together. The two truths are these. One, that every person is united in origin. Every person. Everyone is somehow a son or daughter descended from Noah. That's the first. And the second is that every person is divided according to land, language, clan, and nation. So every person is in one sense united and in another sense divided. Both of those things are God-ordained realities. The Apostle Paul, uh, when he's in Athens, speaking as a Hebrew to a bunch of Greek people, uh, says it very concisely to them uh, this way in Acts chapter 17. What verse am I looking for? 25. Uh, He says this, God gives to all mankind life and breath and everything, and God made from one man, every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. So we are all one man of many nations. Each of us has a shared identity as humanity, but also a distinct identity in our nationality. There are some places where that's pretty clear to notice. You know, if you were to hop on a plane right now and fly off to, I don't know, where are you flying off to? Take a long flight to, to, to Kenya, say. Okay, you get off the, off the plane at Kenya and you're going to notice right away, I might be of one man, yes, but this is a different nation. I'm going to see different customs, different social dynamics, different speech patterns, hear different language spoken. But we're not just talking about different nations in reference to countries. That's often easy to see. Even within the U.S., Hannibal, in one sense, has a different national identity from, say, St. Louis or Boston or Atlanta or San Francisco. It's not just about cities, either. We can go a step further than that. Right now, in our small church, within the walls of those who are sitting here in this moment, we are one man and many nations. We might look similar in some ways, but our last names reflect the different clans that we come from. We all live in different lands. Some live in the countryside. Some live in the wild city. Uh, And even though we all speak English, 
there is a sense in which we speak different languages. Different generations don't always understand the terms of one another. You know, we are one man of many nations, and it will grow us in wisdom and holiness if we're able, by God's grace, to hold those twin truths together, one man and many nations. This has lots of implications for us, but I want us to think about how this plays out in two particular areas of our lives, and then we'll wind down and be done. I want us to look at how this applies in areas of tribalism and areas of racism. This will be easy, right? Tribalism and racism, let's unpack those a little bit further. Tribalism is is the grouping of people into distinct tribes or groups, tribe just means group. And the Bible is not opposed to groups like that. In fact, that's often a good thing. The one nation of Israel, for example, is one nation, but they're also subdivided into 12 tribes of Israel. And each of those 12 tribes is even further subdivided into smaller family clans. That's a blessing from God to them. So tribes can be, can be grouped around things like family history, but they can also be grouped around some other particular shared interest or affinity. So maybe you've heard of the phrase, uh, you know, you gotta find your mom tribe. He sometimes hear some, uh, some talk about that, that there's some solidarity in finding another parent with kids of a similar age so that you can maybe vent together or compare circumstances and, and you kind of go through momming together in your mom tribe. Maybe you have a tribe around your sports team. You know, there's some sort of mini national identity that's often built around athletics. Uh, Or there might even be something like a prayer group, say, that if the same people were to meet over and over and over and over for the purpose of praying, they would develop a sort of, of tribe. Each of those things could be a great blessing a good thing from from God. Tribes in many ways can be good, but there is a type of tribalism that crosses into sin. And that is when a tribe creates a hostile division between us and them. A hostile division between those in the tribe and those outside of the tribe. We see this toxic tribalism most reflected in our American politics. You choose the red tribe or the blue tribe. And whoever's in the other one is your mortal enemy. Say some. And the rhetoric that comes out of both of these tribes makes it seem okay, or good even, to speak about people from the other tribe with disdain, with hate, with arrogance even, as if those other people are the stupidest scum of the earth. And there should be no place for that in Jesus' church. 
to hear those things out of our mouths. This doesn't mean we have to put on a fake smile and pretend that everybody agrees about politics. We know we don't. It's good for us to think, to wrestle, maybe even to connect with some sort of tribe of others that have some common goals and perspective. But when we do that, we have to keep in mind that while we are of many nations, we are of one man. So whatever tribe you're in, the person in the other tribe is a fellow son of Noah. The person in the other tribe is still, in some sense, your brother. Someone who is also blessed by God just as you are, who also bears the image of God just as you do. So whatever you might do with someone else from a different tribe, do not dishonor him. That is dishonoring to God. That's the first implication in matters of tribalism. This also has implications for racism. Race is not a term that we find directly in English Bible. Uh, it's got a cultural definition, a definition that sometimes changes depending on who you ask, maybe sometimes blurs with what we call ethnicity. I'm not going to attempt to define race. I'll leave that to other people. But if you go anywhere to fill out a form, you know, a, a hospital or, or the DMV or, or your insurance agent, you know, you're like, on that form, you're likely to be asked to mark a box called race. And you have to pick whether you're white or black or Hispanic Latino, or American Indian, or Asian, or some other, you know, how this goes. And we all recognize that those terms can be fuzzy, flawed, oftentimes even. It, they're problematic in some ways, especially if you don't neatly fit into one little racial box. But, but this reality leads some people to say, well, there are not lots of races. We're all just one race. It's the human race, and we're all part of that. You know, there's some truth to that. We are all part of the one human race. But if we say that in such a way that it downplays the twin truth, we lose something. We lose the reality that we are also, we're one, but we're also many nations. And different races have different challenges. You know, in the U.S. in general, people with black skin have a different history and a different cultural experience than people with white skin have. And whether we like it or not, that's part of what makes some of these people feel the need to remind themselves that they are not less because of their race, that their lives matter just as much as any other race matters. 
We also know that when the, when the coronavirus a few years ago first came onto our radar, because of its origins, there were, there were some people of Asian descent who were abhorred and even assaulted because of their race. And there are people who are inter, in interracial marriages or relationships that face their own challenges. Lots of judgments from others about what they should or shouldn't do. Even some Christians sometimes belittle interracial relationships, even though there is no biblical basis for that. That's just a matter of our own prejudices. You know, what do we do with something like this? Some people say, well, instead of racism, our, our goal should just be to, 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 to be colorblind. That is, we're going to ignore or disregard race, but that's not what the Bible calls us to. The Bible calls us to a lot of things in regard to race. It calls us to get rid of any idea that one race is superior or inferior to another. It calls us to get rid of our own ignorant judgments. It calls us to strip ourselves of our own selfish prejudices. It calls us to rid ourselves of any contentment about injustices done to our fellow man and to, have, to actually lean forward to pursue peace and reconciliation in matters in regard to race. It wants us to get rid of those things. But the Bible doesn't want us to get rid of race altogether. Your race, that your, your ethnicity, is part of who you are. Genesis, in Genesis 10, in the Table of Nations, is setting us up for what we see in the rest of Scripture to affirm both that we have a union as one single human race, and we have a diversity as many races. Our, our race, our nationality, is something that we will even carry with us into all eternity. When we are with the Lord, we don't just shed our skin like lizards so that we're all going to look like Noah or Adam. We will be a single coat of many colors before God. There's a sort of table of nations in heaven. Some of this will sound familiar to you already. Revelation speaks about it in several places. You'll recognize this verse in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes, and all peoples, and all languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. Our multicolored nationality becomes part of our multicolored praise to God. Even when all is made new, 
Not just a glimpse into the heavens, but a glimpse at forever after in the new heavens and the new earth, when the dwelling place of God is with man, when the river of the tree of life blossoms with leaves for the healing of the nations, and and when Jesus, by his blood, presents his bride of the church in glory and the new Jerusalem descends, then we hear this. This is at the end of Revelation 21. Uh, we hear the city, that is Jerusalem, had no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk. And, listen, and kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. What John's telling us here is this. There are, not everyone enters. There are some who are still in their sin, who are apart from Jesus, who are forever cast out of this. But there are also myriads whom Jesus has cleansed and now brings in from every nation, every tribe, every people, every language, and they don't just check their national identity at the door. They bring the honor of the nations in with them, Can you imagine the grandeur of this global parade? Egyptians coming in with their golden headdresses, Vikings riding in on their ships, you know, those from China coming in with their artisan pottery, people from India with their multicolored dresses, Maasai warriors and doing their dances, the French come bearing bread, the Australians with their big old didgeridoo, and the people from Kansas City with the chief's helmet on. All of these people in one huge table of nations, all these redeemed people of God who would enter and sing in many languages, but in one voice, worthy is the Lamb, and to him be all glory forever. Mm. Would you pray with me? Lord, would you press this upon us to remind us that as as your creatures, mankind whom you've made. We are one and many. Help us to honor you in the midst of that, that we would lean into these things in a way that that serves and honors you. By the power and grace of Jesus, would you transform us to put aside sinful racism or sinful tribalism and to give you the praise that you deserve on the earth. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.